podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. Well, part of the reason I'm here is because, you know, most Christians honor January as a Sanctity of Human Life Month. We know that life is precious. Amen? Um, so, uh, we who are pro-life uh, believe that every person, born and unborn, deserves life and deserves wholeness um, and dignity and kindness. And so today I want to challenge us about two things. First of all, the, the responsibility that, well, I'm ringing a little bit, sorry about that, that we pro-life people um, have toward our neighbors and also why men and fathers matter when it comes to the sanctity of human life. I get this response a lot when I share about what I do, when I share that I work at a pregnancy clinic with men. Most people are a little surprised, um, but they're really important. I'll, we'll talk about that a little bit. So you might agree with me that when you believe in something, it affects your behavior. Um, you might have found that um, children who believe in Santa Claus behave really well in December, don't they? Um, drivers who believe that the police have their radar on are very careful drivers, aren't we? Um, and I believe in gravity, so I did not get in my roof last fall to get the leaves out of my gutters. Um, but I paid a neighbor kid 20 bucks to do it, because um, 20 bucks beats gravity for him, apparently. Um, before I moved to this area, I lived near Detroit for many years, and I volunteered at a, at a pregnancy uh, center there. Um, when I moved to this area, I came to Retta as a volunteer, um, to specifically to lead memorial services for the women who go through the post-abortive program. Um, I was asked to serve on the board of directors. I did that for four years, and then at the end of that tenure, I was asked to join the staff to work with fathers. So I've been on staff serving men and, and couples through men's coaching for over nine years now. Um, that is how I chose to get involved as someone who is pro-life. Well, you might agree with me if I tell you that Jesus is pro-life. Um, many of Jesus' teachings and miracles really reflect um, the fact that he, he connects to the pro-life viewpoint, doesn't he? I'll just give you a few examples. Think about some of the things he did. Um, Jesus was protective of children, wasn't he? He was protective of children. Uh, he scolded Pharisees who were faithful to tithe, but then were neglectful of their elderly parents. Um, he healed a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. He fed hungry people. Well, if that's not pro-life, I don't know what pro-life is. He fed hungry people. He healed the guy's ear that was cut off when Jesus was being arrested in the garden. Um, Jesus taught about peace and loving your enemy and turning the other cheek. And then he did not fight back when he was beaten. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he offered forgiveness for his killers. Um, and he gestured to his mother and to his disciple John and said, here is your mother. He, he took care of her ongoing care, even in the state he was in. Jesus did that for his mother. Let me read you a brief passage from John 10 before we get to our main passage. In John 10, uh, verse 7, Therefore Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Some translations say abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
So you might agree with me that Jesus is pro-abundant life. Um, In this passage, he calls himself the gate and the shepherd. He came so that we might have that abundant life, that full life that he offers. This is what, what he wants for everyone. He wants people to know him, and he wants us to have that abundant life in him. The devil, the thief of life, has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. Anything bad that happens is because of him. The devil, the thief of life, wants to steal that abundant life that Jesus offers us. So think about those people that I mentioned. Their lives were changed when they met Jesus. Think about how your life was changed when you met Jesus. If we're pro-life, we must consider how, how can we do things for people who are not experiencing abundant life yet to get them to that abundant life. So if we are pro-abundant life, we have to agree that unborn children matter. Children matter. Women and mothers matter. Men and fathers matter. People who have different abilities, different levels of ability matter. People who are in a vulnerable state, maybe elderly or sick or injured, if they're vulnerable, they, they matter. People who are victims of trafficking or victims of war or some, in some way have some kind of trouble in their life, their life matters. Others matter. And if life matters, everybody's life matters. So I realize the part about others can kind of be a sticking point, right? Sometimes we declare people as other, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they set themselves aside and say, this is what I am. I am other than you, right? Sometimes people with different religious traditions and practices can seem to be other than us. People whose skin is a different shade than yours can seem to be other. People who aren't living up to God's ideal for relationships and for sexual behavior can seem to be other. At Rutta, we serve people in all of those categories every day. And if we decided that people who were other could not be served by our ministry, we would be pretty bored. And we would not be pro-life. Well, the world is full of people who are experiencing pain and trouble. So when we meet someone who does not know Jesus, um, they have a need and maybe they're other than us. What's the pro-life thing to do? What's the pro-life choice to make? What's the pro-life action to take? What's the attitude we should have about this issue? I'll give you a few examples of some things that have happened since we moved to our new building. You, you saw a video there of us in our new building. If you haven't been there yet, please come. It's great. It's still pretty shiny in most places. Other places it's getting used, and that's the point. It's really great. But here's some things that have happened. Um, we moved in and officially opened to clients on July 5th. So not long after that, school restarted. And so for a while there, we had kids coming in. They were walking home from school, and it was warm. And we're right on a corner near an intersection, and these kids kept coming in and saying, oh, we're so thirsty. Can we, have a, can we have a bottle of water? We have no affiliation with these kids. We're not the school. We're not their parents. You know what? They're hot and thirsty. And so, yeah, we gave them some water bottles. I think that's the pro-life thing to do. We had another incident where um, this woman came in a couple different times throughout one week, and she was clearly disturbed in some way. We're not sure if she was, she was suffering from being under the influence or, or what her condition was exactly. She was a bit confused, and she was kind of wandering around, but she really just needed to use the restroom. So we let her use the restroom. Not hard to do, right? We also we got a call from a hospital, from a caseworker at, at one of the local hospitals, and they said, look, 
There's a mom who gave birth yesterday, and she lives at the Faith Mission in downtown Elkhart. And she has someone to give her a ride, but she does not have a car seat. Now, we understand you guys have a family store. You do mom's coaching. Maybe you have car seats. Is there any way she can get a car seat? Well, you know, the way it works is you come and enroll in, in men's coaching or couples coaching and mom's coaching. You come to classes and you earn points. And then by earning points, that's how you get your car seat. That's our system. But what we said was, you know what? Absolutely. Because, you know what was, is great is a church recently gave us 60 car seats to give out to our fathers and mothers. And so why could we not do the pro-life thing and say, absolutely. So the, the receptionist was able to tell the caseworker at the hospital, please come on by, send someone by. We've got a car seat. Let us know what kind you need. Well, it's an infant one, which is the most expensive. And so we were able to provide a car seat for this caseworker to take back to the hospital so this woman living at the mission with a brand new baby could put her baby in the car seat and get a ride back to this temporary housing situation. That is the pro-life thing to do, to step in and say, with grace, yes, we can give. <laughs> we can offer this. You know, literally none of these things cost Reda staff anything but a couple of minutes of thought, right? Didn't really cost us money, didn't really cost us resources. We engaged people one-on-one, -on -one, and we were able to serve. And so I, I don't tell you these stories to brag at all, but to say, this is how you think through issues. You go, what is the pro-life thing to do if that's who I am? So we're going to look at a story that Jesus told um, to see what it might say about us being pro-life. So if you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, this may be a very familiar passage to you. A story that Jesus told because a man came and asked him a question. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus never gives a straight answer. I love this. He always gives back a question. <laughs> what is written in the law, he said. How do you read it? So the man answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? So the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Probably a familiar story to you, but let's, let's take a quick look at some of the men in this story. First of all, the man who questioned Jesus was asking about God's purpose for our, for our lives. What must I do? What do I have to do to gain eternal life? He's an expert in the law, so he's a lawyer, okay? 
Maybe there's some lawyers here, and that's great. This man was a lawyer. But what he's asking is, is there more than this? Is there more to be done? What's interesting is he didn't go through the Ten Commandments. He summarized it as Jesus did in another passage. He kind of gave the top two. Love God, love your neighbor. But is there more to be done? He's assuming there's more to be done to gain everlasting or eternal life. So he's a lawyer, and as he addressed this topic, he's trusting in his knowledge of the Old Testament, right? He knows the law. He knows the subtle interpretations. He knows the loopholes, right? He knows the loopholes. Um, I think it's human nature, not just lawyer nature, <laughs> to look for the loopholes, isn't it? After we've been told what's expected of us, we look for loopholes. If you don't think that's true, find a child and ask them to perform a chore for you in your house. Maybe this is just my family. <laughs> when you ask children to do chores, you might say something like, um, you need to clean up your room, or uh, take care of the dog, or take out the trash. I, I teach parenting one-on-one -on -one every day. What I can tell you is all those directions are way too vague. <laughs> There's way too many loopholes in all of that, right? Clean up your room. Here's what the loophole child thinks. Clean up your room. That means things need to be out of sight, right? So later on, dad comes back in the room and says, hey, you did a great job. This room is so clean, it's spotless. And the child's just very happy and proud, and everything's great. What he will not admit yet, until he has to, is that actually stuff's just out of sight. He didn't, you know, clean, clean. We didn't use, you know, solvents and rags and vacuums and things like that. We just put what, in, what could go in the closet to keep the closet door closed. Everything else went under the bed, right? Maybe that's just me and my family. But we're looking for loopholes in life, aren't we? And that's what the lawyer is doing. He's looking for loopholes. We're always looking to clarify. What it says is he's looking to justify himself. This is a little bit like what happened in the Garden of Eden. When the serpent spoke to Eve, the serpent said, well, did God really say less than so? Looking for the loophole. Looking to give Eve a way out of obedience. I think that's human nature. So the lawyer, Jesus, they discuss the commandments. The lawyer wants to know more specifically about where his responsibility is going to fall. He wants to know if it has limits. I think he was pretty quick to go, you know, there might be a category of non-neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who is my neighbor? Because maybe the person you're thinking of is not really my neighbor. I think he's looking for that category. Who is other? Non-neighbor, they're other. So Jesus tells the story, and in the story then we meet another man, we meet a priest. So because of his profession, right, what his duties are, he should have been easily induced to perform this act of mercy. What we see is that he actively chose to escape the sphere of the man on the ground, the victim, and his needs. He did not act in a pro-life manner. And the next guy down the road, we meet, we meet a Levite. Levites are helpers to priests, so they know what is required of both Levites and priests. He had fewer demands on his time, and he could have offered relief, but he chose to not help, which is not the pro-life thing to do. So these two men of similar background, they, they just failed to give any kind of help, failed to render any kind of aid. Maybe they were afraid of more muggers. Hey, the muggers got this guy, I might be next. I'm going to hurry on, Right? Maybe they were afraid of some kind of contamination. You know, if I, he's not dead, but he's almost dead. And if I touch him, well, I'm not really sure, like, what do I have to do to clean up? Like, maybe, maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe they just didn't want to be bothered. You know, their job in Jerusalem was done. They were heading on down. 
and maybe they just didn't want to be bothered. Maybe they were uncomfortable. Maybe they were concerned about the financial cost. We say based on what the Samaritan did, there was a financial cost. And maybe they thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to go badly. Either way, they just continued on. They, they did not engage. They simply did not, they, they didn't just not stop, right? What did they do? They crossed the road. They crossed the road to the other side and kept going, and their cold shadows passed over the victim and provided no comfort. You know, now we, don't, we, we know their actions. We don't really know their hearts. Like, maybe they were sympathetic. Would have been great to show some sympathy. Would have been great to show some courage and stop and help. But they, they kept moving. They kept the religious appointments. And so what they chose, though, was almost deadly for this man. So there are a few places in Scripture that we see God desires mercy, not sacrifice. We've heard about the Old Testament sacrificial system, what was required, right? But multiple places we see that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. When we have a choice to do either the, the religious thing or do to the personally merciful thing, the Bible says that God desires that we would demonstrate mercy towards someone in need. Um, rather than try to maintain our religious behavior. They maintained what was expected of them rather than stop and show mercy. But God desires mercy, not sacrifice. So I've already suggested maybe the Samaritan was pro-life, right? The Samaritan was racially and religiously other to the victim um, and to the Levite and to the priest um, Jesus was very intentional about using this man as the hero in the story. So the, the victim was hurt, he's bloody, he's dirty, he's on the ground. For the Samaritan or for anybody who would have helped him, there was potential contamination, right? Um, since, uh, since COVID hit a few years ago, there are still places where you have to wear masks. There are still places where people wear gloves before they touch you or before they touch food or before they do different things. We've got all these little these things that we do to kind of protect against contamination. So that was a, a real risk, wasn't it, for anybody, for the Samaritan, for anybody else. As Jesus tells the story, we know the victim was not the Samaritan's kind of person. We know that they were probably other to each other. And yet, the Samaritan chose to take action. Jesus taught that before we commit to the life of discipleship, we ought to count the cost, right? Three different people came to, see, to, to follow Jesus, and they said, I would like to follow you. And he said, you know, uh, birds have nests, foxes have dens. I, I don't have a house and the implication is that that potential disciple walked away, right? Jesus said we have to count the cost if we're going to be a disciple. So in this, uh, in this situation, Jesus tells this story, and he's addressing the two commandments with this lawyer. And what we see is that love is about action and that love is about the condition of our heart. It is not either or, Right? It is not either or, it is both. For Jesus, behavior is the outward and the visible expression of something that is on the inside. Our behavior is character in motion. So part of the result of our love for God will be a regard for others who are made in the image of God. Love is not limited by race or social situation or residency or whatever. So... Notice, as Jesus tells the story, he finishes with a question, right? Jesus is full of great questions. Now, who do you think was the neighbor? The lawyer won't even say the word Samaritan. Do you notice that? 
He doesn't say, well, the Samaritan, who apparently was very good-hearted and very rich, what he says is, well, the, the one who shows mercy. The lawyer is still thinking of the Samaritan as other, even as Jesus has told this story. So according to the story, a neighbor is someone who needs help. Neighbors might be found in surprising places, maybe even on your way to somewhere else. So do we as pro-life people believe that people are made in the image of God? Let's say amen if we do. Are people made in the image of God? Amen. Amen. Yes, we do. If so, they are our neighbor wherever we find them, wherever we encounter them. Um, the, The man asked Jesus, what must I do? But the way Jesus answered, Jesus told him what to be. He didn't say there's more to do. He said, here's what you ought to be. You ought to be a neighbor. You have to be loving. Well, you might agree with me again that pro-life people are responsible then to take pro-life actions. Um, It's up to Christians and nobody else to do the biblical thing. Why would we expect anybody else to do the biblical thing than those of us who follow Jesus and follow his word? Notice this. The Good Samaritan did the right thing because the opportunity was there. Because the people who were following God chose to not help. That is an indictment. He had the opportunity to do good because the people who were following God went on the other side of the street. So as pro-life people, here's what is great. We can point to God as the source of life. We are made in the image of God. Unborn children are made in the image of God. Everybody is made in the image of God. And so as a result, we can offer grace. We can offer generosity, even if it's something we didn't really pay for. (laughs) We can offer grace. We can offer generosity. We can offer a willingness to go the extra mile. This Samaritan went more than a mile with this man. He picked him up. He loaded him on his animal and moved and found a place to go. And how many, how many needs did he meet for this man? He got him rest. He got him medical attention. In fact, he did the little first aid right there. He did it all right there. We have that to offer to our neighbors. It really does take this this attitude of selflessness, this attitude of mercy. Who can I show mercy to today? And I'll tell you, again, this is the biblical thing to do. It's the Christian thing to do. We can't rely on anybody else. We can't rely on politicians. (laughs) It might surprise you that sometimes politicians do things that are disappointing. And when politicians do the things that you want them to do, remember then that they are going to expect something of you because you got them into that spot. So just be wise about the company you keep. That is my political advice to you today. Christians are responsible to do this. So here's a few other things. If being pro-life means that you want to prevent abortion, here's a few things to think about. And again, I know I'm biased because I'm the men's coaching manager, but men, men matter. Men matter to God. Men matter. Have you ever thought about Psalm 139 and how it applies to men? We often hear Psalm 139 when people are speaking about the pro-life issue, but I want you to think about this in the context of this is for men too. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. 
such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Later on in the chapter, in, in Psalm 139, it says, You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Did you realize this was written for men too, not just unborn children? Men matter to God. Are you aware that men are influential in an abortion decision? They are. Whether they are for it or not, they are influential. We've heard many stories about how men will influence these decisions. I'll give you a couple things to think about with that. With the ladies we have worked with in our post-abortive ministry, we have found about 80% of them who have regret, those who have regret for abortion, what they say is, if the father of the child had not wanted that, I, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have made that decision if I had known that he didn't want that. What she's saying is, I wish he would have spoken up. I wish he would have said something. But she didn't know. Maybe she never told him. Maybe he never had a chance to respond, but he didn't speak up. What we know is the law that was passed in 1973, 50 years ago now this month, there's been some unintended consequences from that. One of them is that for 50 years, man after man after man has been walking away from pregnant woman, pregnant woman, pregnant woman, and saying, you know what? This is your decision. This is your right. This is your life, you know. Have a nice life, but I'm, I'm out. For 50 years, men have been doing that. And so another unintended consequence then is mom is left with the decision all on her own, unless she includes someone in that decision. And then she's left with the consequences of that decision all on her own. Whether she chooses to be a single mom, chooses to have the, her child adopted into another family, which is great, or chooses abortion, she often deals with the consequence as well on her own because she's been told, it's up to you. The rest of us are going to step away for a while while you think about that. Unintended consequences. Um, that, that was something people had not thought about happening, the kind of burden that women have to bear. And some would say, well, it's a woman's right. They're independent. They can think for themselves, right? But have you ever made a hard decision and not gained some kind of counsel? Have you ever made a decision about your future or someone else's future in your family and not had a conversation with someone? Um, those kinds of things need to happen. Well, we know that fathers have an impact on their families. Whether they're involved or not, they have an impact on their families. I'll give you a few things here to think about. When fathers are involved in pregnancy and in raising their children, studies show moms are more likely to receive prenatal care when dad's involved. Moms have healthier birth. Um, infant mortality is lowered. Baby's birth weight is up when dads are involved in the pregnancy. Moms are uh, much less at risk for postpartum stress and depression if dad's involved. Marriages are more satisfying and moms have more leisure time. If you've ever met a mother who said, I don't need more time to myself, um, I think you were dreaming. When dads are involved, moms even get that. When dads are engaged with their families and they take responsibility, kids and the moms tend to have better physical and emotional health. They tend to do well in school and have healthy friendships. Um, they are less likely to experience the neglect. They are four times more likely to not live in poverty. It's a pretty good statistic. 
If having dad involved in our families could keep kids out of poverty, keep kids out of some kind of assistance, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Kids are less likely to become injured, to deal with obesity, to become pregnant as teenagers. A girl in a house without her father is seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teenager than a girl growing up with her dad in the house. Kids with dads in their lives are less likely to be incarcerated as juveniles and adults, and they're less likely to use alcohol, drugs, or commit suicide. A good dad positively affects every part of a kid's life. So, again, remember that the thief of life (laughs) wants to steal and kill and destroy and remove that abundant life from those of us who Jesus came to offer it to. So we need to be concerned about men. Men are influential not just with abortion decisions. They're influential in politics, in finances, in business, in families, in church leadership. We need to be concerned about men and how they're doing. In the parable, two men whose job it was to promote belief in God crossed to the other side. But the man who is willing to cross racial and religious lines and to be a neighbor to someone who was other was the real pro-life person. So, you might agree with the biblical case for being pro-life. You might not know what Jesus might be challenging you to do. You might have some exciting adventures ahead. Let me give you a few things to think about, to consider. As a church, as an individual follower of Jesus, um, I'd encourage you, promote fatherhood as a good thing. You know, in our culture today, patriarchy is a bad word. Toxic masculinity is thrown about all the time. Basically, if you're a man, we think you're terrible. That's what our culture says, pretty much. Fatherhood is a great thing. What an honor to be a father. Marriage is a good thing. We should be promoting marriage. Keep it connected, (laughs) To families, keep it connected to the idea of pregnancy. Keep it out there in the forefront that marriage is good. Every marriage isn't perfect, but marriage is good. Marriage is a great thing. Men, you can set the example for what a good and godly man is. Anyone in your house and any boy that you influence, maybe a younger guy that you can influence where you work, where you spend time. We can help boys and men develop good and godly character. Nobody has to be toxic anything. We can help them develop godly character. So maybe consider mentoring a boy, mentoring a younger man who is near you. The suggestion I often give guys is, you know, if you're good at something, especially if you're good at something you can do in a garage, I bet you literally have a neighbor who you can go down the street and say, hey, would you like to learn how to use this tool? I'd like to show someone how to use this tool. This is really great. I see a lot of guys who are 19 who are benefiting from someone else's uh, state assistance who are sometimes employed but haven't had a mentor, haven't had a good dad in their life. They need guys like that to show up down the street, show up in their office, show up in their shop, wherever you can do that. Frederick Douglass was a former slave, and he became an abolitionist, was an educator. He said this in the 1800s. He said, It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. That sounds almost biblical, doesn't it? It is easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. Now, people are not things like machines that you have to fix, right? And I see a lot of broken men in my office. I often say, you know what? Everybody cries. All the men cry with me, and I don't think it's me. (laughs) But what I know is these men are motivated to see their children. They're motivated to be good dads. They're motivated to tear some of them, and they've got some brokenness in their life, and they've got someone who's showing them respect and who's listening to them in front of them. That's a pretty great thing. Men. And it was made known to the leadership. And one of the deaconesses said, 
We need to get these kids up front of the church on a Sunday morning where they can confess their sin to the whole church, publicly standing up with a microphone. And they said, and the deacon says, we will not be providing a baby shower for this baby. So I asked if everybody else in the church was going to get up in front of the church too um, to confess our sins about our gossip and our overeating, that was for me, um, and about our lying and about some of the bitterness we were holding on to for things that had happened in our past. I was told, well, no, everybody else isn't going to do that. Okay. Well, I can tell you the decision was made to not make those kids stand up and confess, and the baby got a shower. The couple got a shower for their baby. Because that is the pro-life thing to do. That is the gracious thing to do. When, when we hear about situations like this, sometimes we get concerned. If, if I help someone who is not living right, then I'm condoning their behavior, or I'm promoting it. I'm making it easier for them to stay in the bad behavior and not make positive changes, not do the right thing. Sometimes we get concerned about that. It is not hypocritical to offer grace, to, help, to offer help to a person in such a situation. Um, it is gracious, because think about it. What if God only helped those of us who behaved properly 100% of the time? Would I be a recipient of grace? No. <laughs> First of all, we don't earn grace, do we? It's not about being proper 100% of the time. But it is not hypocritical to help people in those situations. As pro-life people, we can live out the grace that God has already given us when we act neighborly to someone who is in need. We've already received grace. Jesus said, freely you have received, freely give. So what God wants to do in you might be uncomfortable. Don't you think it was for the Samaritan? Um, might make you acknowledge your fears or your bias. I think maybe the priest and Levite acknowledged their fears and went the other way. The Samaritan acknowledged it. It might require a sacrifice. You know, it cost this guy some money to take care of the victim, didn't it? Might be the first time you've done it. First time doing anything can be really scary, especially being a neighbor to someone who you didn't know was your neighbor. And it really might be according to your giftedness. And isn't that great that the Holy Spirit already looked down the road to see who you might encounter on the road and gifted you accordingly so you could serve? Isn't that a great thing that as Christians we're already gifted? I had lunch with a friend of mine just last week and I laughed because we sat down and he said, so I need you to tell me what to do with my life. <laughs> that is a risky thing to say to anybody, especially me. And he was half joking, but he said, you know, he's just really unsatisfied with his job. He's unsatisfied with his career at this point. He feels like he needs to do more. He even went so far as to do some, some testing and say, what, what might I be good at? And what kept popping up was, think about ministry. Think about a nonprofit. Think about serving others. And so he came to me and said, all right, what do I do? <laughs> so we had a good conversation. He might leave his job at some point to be involved in full-time ministry. I don't really know. That is not up to me. But, you know, God might not require a job change. He might not require that you relocate. Um, what God has in mind for us might require a heart change. Um, so I encourage you, let God show you who your neighbor is. And then let's do the pro-life thing. Thank you. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, 
visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.